All right, in just a moment, I'm going to read for us from 1 Samuel 21. And as always, I invite you, uh, as is most helpful to you, to either follow along in your bulletins or in your Bibles. And in coming to chapter one and, uh, 21 and getting ready to read this text, the die is cast. Jonathan and others love David, but Saul is clearly now his enemy seeking to put David to death. And David Firth, a commentator on this passage, states it concisely. David's fugitive status has been confirmed, and he is now on the run from Saul. So here, this portion of God's word, it is inspired, written, and preserved for the people of God, for us. Hear this portion, then I'm going to read all of chapter 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I sent you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priests, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate 
and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought me this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord for his people. Now let me quote David. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. That's our title for today. Lord, thank you for this word. And thank you for the fact that it is living. And we pray that today it would pierce us, that it would get through the defenses that we put up, the calluses that have worn around. Lord, we pray that it would go to our hearts, go through our minds, and manifest itself in our lives today. Do that with this mighty word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. How would you like that cooked? How would you like it served, sir, ma'am? All of us have been in a restaurant, ordered whatever, a steak, a hamburger, and had the server ask us that question. How would you like it cooked? Now, if you'll allow me, let me adapt that for us today. I want to adapt and borrow the question. If, if the Bible teaches us what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man, that's from the uh, shorter catechism that we confess together, then I ask you this question. How would you like your Bible cooked? How would you like it served to you? Would you, would you like your theology prepared in a certain way? Would you like the duties related to you in a certain way, communicated to you in a certain way? Would you prefer it in Proverbs or poetry? Would you like to take the Ten Commandments and say, I'm a, I'm a meat and potatoes, Ten Commandments kind of guy. I like it straightforward. Or are you a revelation person, a pictorial person. And for you, it's better communicated in those fantastic images that we find in the book of Revelation and other places. Would you like the doctrine of, repent of, of providence? Would you like the doctrine of providence from Paul in Romans or from the book of Ruth? How would you like it served? Today, we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 21, and for many of us, when we look at this passage, it is disturbingly messy. It is really disordered when you listen to or read the things that I've read for us this morning. It is resistant to a flow chart, to going, okay, this is the logical way that all of this proceed. The Bible writers with great care resist any temptation to fall into hagiography, to write only about the saints of old as if they were perfectly holy, while then at the same time kind of glossing over any of the darkness that existed in their lives, any of the troubling parts of their lives. They resist that temptation. No, what we've got for us today is the Word of God in all of its rawness. 
This is the meat of scripture and it is blood red. It is wood that is unsanded for us today. These actions and the decisions of David, and we'll come back to this today, are left by our writer unevaluated, unassessed. He doesn't come to the end of it and say, and thus, this is what you should do. Or David did the right thing, or David did the wrong thing. They're just presented to us as they are, and praise God for that. Praise God for who of us? Whom of us can understand everything about what we do? Which one of us has always made the right decisions in life? Always taken the steps that are logical, that are reasonable, that are rational, that are biblical, and has always followed through completely on those. Whom of us has not acted in fear, said something, and wished later that we hadn't done that? Wished that we could have done that a different way or taken it back in some way. So our text today in it, behold a saint. Behold one of us, a poor man on the run who is cared for and is saved by the grace of God. Now here's what I'd like to do today to kind of take us through this. A couple of couplets. A couple of couplets are going to take us through our passage today and guide us along. And we begin with questionable decisions and dubious words and actions. Okay, questionable decisions and dubious words and actions. We find David in our text today in two places. He makes the decision in the first place to go to Nob, to go there for a little bit of protection and apparently a little bit of supplies, right? He's, he's now on the run. He's now a fugitive. He recognizes that one of the things you need as a fugitive on the run is food. And so he goes to Nob, and we could examine and try and figure out the reasons that he does this. But in any case, that is the decision he makes. It is a place that has been established for worship after the pattern that is articulated for the tabernacle, and then will become uh, the temple later. But David goes to that place in the first part. And in the second place, he goes from there and heads to Gath. Now, Gath is Philistine territory. And if it's not bad enough that Gath is in Philistine territory with a Philistine king, by way of reminder, Gath is Goliath's hometown. This is where Goliath is from. And that's where David says, I'm going there. I'm going to Gath with, by the way, Goliath's sword as I go into that place. When we are under stress, we don't always make the best decisions. Maybe, maybe David thought, listen, now that I have been declared an enemy of the state by Saul, Gath won't be against me because, you know, I've been declared an enemy of Israel. And maybe he thought, well, while I'm there, I'll be safe from Saul because Saul isn't going to want to go into Gath to get me out of there. But in any case, it doesn't work out this, that way this time that Gath is a safe place for David. He no more than gets there when he's confronted by fear because of the words that the commanders speak to the kings, reminding him 
of who this David actually is. In both places, in both places, David ends up engaged and entangled in a web of deception that is designed to cover his tracks to obscure his intentions. I, I, can, I can think of times when I have said things and I've realized, oh no, I've gotten myself here ahead of myself and now you can't get out of it. And that's what we see with David. He says some things right off the bat that then he's got to keep compounding the lies in terms of what he has said and how to get out of it. And this is going to have disastrous consequences in Nob. We'll see those in two weeks, but it's in chapter 22. And our writer makes no attempt to defend these decisions or actions of David. He doesn't suggest in any way that this was justified behavior, that in fact David could get away with it because he was the anointed king or because he was on the run. At best, it seems to me, and parents, you can look at this, what, what would you think if this was your kid who was involved in something like this? At best, it seems to me that these decisions were unwise and they were lacking in prudence. Now, I mean, if you look at what David has done, does it show cleverness, resourcefulness, uh, that, that he's quick-witted? Well, I, I'm sure in some ways, yes, it does. But then you kind of look at this and go, okay, at, at what cost? At what cost to the soul? At what cost to truth? At what cost to integrity? At what cost to others? But there's more here. We might be tempted to dismiss these things quickly, to, to read through this chapter and kind of dismiss it quickly as a what not to do. Okay, when you're in bad circumstances, this is kind of an example of don't do this thing right here. But for those of us who have made awful decisions and acted and spoken foolishly, and in so doing, harmed others for us. Let's look again at this passage. So if, if that first, the adjectives in that first one were the questionable and dubious decisions and words and actions of David, the next couplet is this, bountiful care and daily bread. Bountiful and daily. I, I find it surprising is too weak of a word. I find it almost shocking and wonderful that Jesus picks up this story and sees in this story not just something wrong, not just David lied and you shouldn't lie, but instead he sees something Jesus gracious and merciful. Now, I'm focusing for a moment at David and Nob, the first part of this story, and we're comparing it, of course, with the words that we read about in our New Testament reading this morning. Jesus knew the Scriptures, knew the Scriptures well enough to take this, what I'm sure all of us would, be, would consider an unusual series of episodes, and apply it to a situation in which he and his disciples found themselves. So Ahimelech says to David 
that the only bread that is available, David, of course, has come and he's looking for provisions. He's looking for something to eat. The only bread that is available is, in fact, the holy bread. It is the bread of the presence. There's 12 loaves of this bread that would have been displayed and rotated at least on a weekly basis. And this bread demonstrates the fact that God is with his people, that the people are with God, and that God has cared for his people, been present with his people, and made provision for his people over the course of the years. That's what this, sitting over here, if you would, this bread of the presence represented exactly that. It was holy bread. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 24. It was holy bread. It was not common bread. And because it was holy bread, if you read in chapter 24 of Leviticus, what you'll see there is that only the priests could eat of it. It wasn't for everybody to partake of it, but when you were done with it, and when it was being rotated from Sabbath to Sabbath, then the priests could eat that bread. But in listening to David, the priest makes a decision. Now, his, his, his decision has parameters around it, right? There's the discussion about have, have your men kept themselves pure? Now, the fact that David would know or not know whether or not his men have been kept pure makes absolutely no sense in the story. You can't make that make sense. There's no way he knows it, given the haste that has taken place. So the story is crumbling. But the priest wants to make sure, have your men been kept ceremonially clean? David assures him that that is the case. And so the priest decides that in this case, need is higher than ceremony that mercy trumps ritual here. And this ritual is not just human ritual, it's God's established order. This is the provision of God, the order of God. And, and the priest, though, looks at this and says, listen, behind or, or at the core of this bread sitting right here is a statement. God provides for his people. That's what the bread communicates. And so the priest considers the situation and, and says, is it more important to communicate that ceremonially or to actually do it? To actually use the bread to provide for the people. And he makes the decision accordingly. Now the point here isn't that we can willy-nilly ignore the commands of God. The point is that there are substantive core issues of the law of love, and we should be able to see them. And so, as Jesus it, references it and quotes not only this passage, but the words of Hosea, Jesus says, if you understood this passage, you would understand what it means when it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, David himself is going to learn this same lesson, is perhaps right in the process of learning this lesson. You recognize the, uh, the similar theme that's found in Psalm 51 here. Psalm 51, David confessing sin, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And so, however contrived and convoluted is David's story, 
and I submit to you that, that you can't get around those words to describe this story. It's contrived and it's convoluted. Bountiful care, what tongue can recite, shines through. That's what shines through at this moment. Ralph Davis, my favorite commenter on these passages, puts it simply, David received his daily bread. You want to know what this is about? This is about David receiving his daily bread. It's as simple as that. God provided for and sustained him in a moment that certainly wasn't his finest hour. It wasn't the shining moment of David's life. Our next couplet then will take us to the next section, take us to Gath, unmerited favor and inspired reflection. Unmerited favor and inspired reflection. At first glance, I'm sure that most of us think that a picture of David playing the madman, feigning insanity, walking around the town with some instrument or rock or something and writing or making marks on the doors and allowing his spit to run down his beard so that it saturates his beard. I'm sure when we read that, we probably think, you know what, we could probably skip over, over this section in terms of deep life lessons. I mean, what have you done with that passage when you get to it in family devotions? It's very colorful, so you can read it and go, well, okay, we can imagine this story, but what do you do with it? What are the lessons that come out of a situation like that, of an image that we have like that? I mean, I don't know. If somebody's doing my life and, 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 and writing about it, I might prefer that the editor, you know, just, just strike that one. Just say, listen, that was a bad day. It was a bad decision. Can we just forget about that one and scratch it out? But when the editor, the writer, is the Holy Spirit, and the actor is David, we do well to consider it again because that Holy Spirit is going to inspire that man to write about this event. This is one mixed up episode. Do you have enough imagination just to imagine the scene? To imagine what it looks like when our hero, king, the one, the one with the heart after God's heart, is walking around feigning madness, and yet it turns out to be grist for the mill of a life of faith. That's what this episode is. Again, Ralph Davis says, this is the stuff psalms are made of. This is it. This, this is what you make truth out of. It may be ugly. You may not like it. You may think it's not pretty. I choose to have it prepared in some other way. And God says, take it like this, because I'm going to make something out of it that you're going to be surprised about. David doesn't wish away this experience. He doesn't blot it out. He reflects on it. He ponders it. He looks at himself the situation, and God, he asked the question, what is happening here? What am I doing? What is God doing? What have I learned? And he's reflecting on this, and he takes his pen in his hand, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he sits down and writes Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 that come out of this, that come out of this mess. 
To me, that is stunning. Stunning. That an incident so peculiar should provide the impetus for words so heavenly. That, that spittle on the beard should be transformed into poetry. That suspect decisions, words, acts should generate guidance for the faithful for thousands of years. This episode? That is so like God. It's what God does. It's not how we would orchestrate it. It's not how we design it. But it's so like God. The title of Psalm 34, the ascription, is this, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. The ascription for Psalm 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now, time is not going to allow us today to, of course, exegete this passage of Scripture and then look at two psalms together, but here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you today to go home and sit around your table at lunch and read those two psalms aloud and laugh and weep as you read them at the unmerited favor of God that they uncover in our bulletin today and throughout our service, I have splashed as much of the words of Psalm 34 as I could fit into it. It's on the front of your bulletin. It's in the call to worship. It's the promise of forgiveness. It's the title of the sermon, This Poor Man Cried, and the Lord Heard Him and Saved Him from All His Troubles. What can we possibly learn from Gath? These six verses in 1 Samuel 21, what could you possibly take out of it? Well, if you're David, the man who was in it, and you're reflecting on it, it seems that out of this situation, you can take everything. And the Psalms are evidence of that. You can learn praise and humility, poverty of spirit, what to do when you're afraid. You can learn trust. You can learn prayer. You can learn about God's goodness, his providential care and protection. Even in one of the phrases that describes God's protection of David here, it will be used to describe the protection of our Lord on the cross, that none of his bones were broken. Out of Gath? Out of this? Yeah. And here's one section that perhaps you wouldn't expect, and I do have to read this one because it's so <laughs> stunning from Psalm 34. Remember the context in which it is written, considered, thought about. From Psalm 34, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Children, gather around. I've got a story to tell you. It's a story that I, that I realized when I had spittle running down my beard. Come. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. 
That's David reflecting on this episode and saying, come on, children, I've got a lesson I've got to tell you. I've got to tell you about this. Those words are picked up by Peter in 1 Peter to say, in a hostile world, in a world that is unfavorable to the gospel, when you've got to live there, you've got to love one another, you've got to have one mind, you've got to act in humility, and then these words are quoted. So, that's the direction they go. They go from Gath, they go to Psalm 34, they go to 1 Peter, and they're right before us giving us instruction about how to live in Gath, a.k.a. the world. But there's one lesson that stands out above all of the others, and you wouldn't be able to miss it if we had time to read Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. And it is this. And this is just paraphrasing phrases that are in those psalms. The Lord delivers. The Lord redeems. The Lord saves. Here's the line. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. That's the takeaway for David. That's the takeaway from being in Gath. You want to put it in New Testament terms? Would you like it served another way? Paul would say it like this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And David would say, out of the way, Paul. Out of the way. I'm the foremost. But God has saved me like he saved you. However you like your meat cooked, your theology served. That is the sum and substance of it. That is the heart of God. It is the heart of the gospel. It is the joy of the Reformation. That salvation is of the Lord. That salvation is of the Lord. That salvation is of Christ. Have you made some really bad decisions? that have put you in hard places? Have you said things that were true or untrue that have come back to haunt you? You're not the only one with deep flaws, deep fissures in your life. Ralph Davis again, commenting on the gift of the bread to David and Nob writes this, listen carefully, quote, some scrupulous reader may object and complain that David, in all his finagling and deception, does not deserve this provision. So, what else is new? Who would have daily bread if it rested on our desserts, we'd all be skeletons. When everything is scraped down to the bone, I receive my daily bread, not because I am godly, but because Yahweh is gracious." End quote. And what's true of daily bread is more true of salvation the bread of heaven.
By grace, I am an heir of heaven. Go figure. That's the late lesson of this dark chapter. Sometimes our darkest moments open up for us by the grace of God, a window into his glory, his mercy, his kindness, his tenderness that we would otherwise never see, never see through, and never experience. God is able to take those moments and show himself in mercy to our crushed spirits, even if we're the ones who got ourselves into that mess. Lord, we pray. We pray that you would hear us as poor people who cry out to you and say we need your help. Lord, would you hear us, care for us, and save us? Don't leave us on our own. Don't leave us to our own devices. Don't leave us to our own interpretations. But find us and seek us and then help us to walk in you. Lord, be near to our crushed spirits. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, I would love to sing it.